This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Ed Caesar is an award-winning author and journalist with a keen interest in the psychology of human endurance. In his first book, Two Hours, he explored the quest to run a sub-two-hour marathon, and the men determined to break that seemingly impossible barrier. His follow-up, The Moth and the Mountain, tells the extraordinary story of Maurice Wilson, a First World War veteran who, in 1933 attempted to fly a gypsy moth biplane from England to the foothills of Mount Everest, and then climb the as-yet-unconquered mountain alone. Both books present portraits of damaged men who were nevertheless possessed of an unwavering self-belief. Before I introduce Ed Caesar, here's a clip of Chris Dyer narrating The Moth and the Mountain, by kind permission of audio publisher W.F. Howes. Wilson had been expressly forbidden by the British authorities, both in India and at home in England, to make the journey. The Tibetan government had not given him permission to enter their kingdom, and the British were anxious to avoid a diplomatic incident. If Wilson was discovered at any point on his trek, he would be arrested. He knew he was in most danger of apprehension on the first part of his journey out of Darjeeling and through the British protectorate of Sikkim, with its leech-infested rivers, verdant forests and sparkling waterfalls. For that reason, he had paid his hotel bill six months in advance to throw the police off the scent. He also planned to leave Darjeeling at midnight in disguise as a Tibetan priest. Wilson had hired three bootiers, Sikkimese men of Tibetan ancestry to accompany him to Everest. The most senior of them, an experienced climber and porter named Tsering, helped him into his outfit. The disguise was dazzling. A Chinese brocaded waistcoat in gold with gold buttons at the side, which Wilson thought made him look like a circus trainer. Dark blue cotton slacks, a bright red silk girdle. To finish the look, Wilson wore a fur-lined bootier hat with large ear flaps to cover his white man's hair, dark glasses to hide his white man's eyes, and he carried a decorative umbrella. Somewhat ruining the effect, he also wore a pair of hobnail boots, huge, high, heavy items with nails driven into the soles for extra grip. A ludicrous outfit. Wilson loved it. Ed Caesar, welcome to My Life in Books. Thanks so much, Red. We've just met Maurice Wilson striding out to his objective of Mount Everest in 1933. But he was a man who was very much forged by his upbringing and then the First World War. Can you give us a bit of background to his life before the Moth and the Mountain? Yes, of course. Morris Wilson was born in Bradford in uh, 1898, and his life looked to be going down a quite comfortable but not uh, overly comfortable path. Uh, his his father had done quite well in Bradford and now had his own mill, worked in the textiles industry. And it's quite possible that were it not for the First World War, none of us would ever have heard of Morris Wilson because he, you know, his path was set. He was going to go into the textiles business. He would have worked in his father's company, and his joys and his triumphs and his failures would have been his own, and, and no one would ever heard of him. But in 1914, when Britain became involved in the First World War, he was 16 years old, and the war changed everything for him. He signed up on his 18th birthday, and he eventually saw serious action when he won his military cross at a place called Wittschait during the German Spring Offensive of 1918. Um, you know, the heroism that he displayed 
on that day when hundreds of his fellow battalion members were killed or or wounded or taken prisoner was astonishing you know he stayed at his post in front of the line for many hours firing on the enemy and somehow was able to rejoin his his shattered battalion at the end of that day and those experiences never left him he is someone who never ever really got over his experiences in in France and and they they forged his personality in many ways and he had a terrible reminder of the horrors of the western front at home both in terms of all the friends and neighbours who had been slaughtered in that conflict because they had the PALS brigades where people from the same street, people from the same school joined up in the same regiment. So if one died, it was likely that many, many more were going to die. And also his brother Victor, who was horribly shell-shocked. That's right. I remember one of the bits of research for this book that really um, haunted me was at one point in a kind of fit of mania, I decided to find out what happened to all the young men on Morris Wilson Street in Bradford. So um, it was a fairly painstaking process. But I went up and down his street and it was amazing to me how many of them never came back from France and from Flanders. And so in one sense, Maurice Wilson was very lucky that he did come back. He, he did eventually get invalided home because he was um, machine gunned through the left arm. But his brother had survived similar experiences, but his mental state was really, really troubled. And, and he was sent away at the end of the war to, to recuperate on the coast, on the Lancashire coast. But Victor Wilson never, never recovered. Uh, and what, what I found most haunting about sort of relationship between Victor and Morris was that Victor was already visibly troubled. He was unable to continue fighting. He was, you know, he had nightmares. He, he called out in the night. He shook his, his, you know, eyelids quivered. And Morris and Victor met each other while Victor was in the state just before Morris went out to the First World War. So Morris knew what awaited him or what could await him um, as a result of his service. And... He was left with a determination, I think, to to live a full life rather than a half-life. And that gave him a kind of restless soul. He travelled extensively trying to quench that thirst. He, He went first to New Zealand and then Mozambique and to Canada as well. Yeah, exactly. He was he went all over the world. And in fact, that was not uncommon with people who had come out of the First World War. When they got home to the UK, they found quite a difficult situation. You know, there were streets full of widows. Uh, There wasn't an obvious place for a lot of these men who'd returned in society. And travelling to the empire, as it was then, was quite an attractive prospect. So Wilson, he was in uh, New Zealand, as you say. Um, he tried his luck in South Africa and Mozambique. He, he travelled all the way across the United States. And it's interesting, you get these little snippets of him trying to work out what his life is all about. You know, he, he, he reports being in this terrible depression um, on his way back across America and across the Atlantic. So, yeah, he was restless. He was a seeker. You know, he sought out, I guess, unusual solutions to his unease. You know, he was interested in all sorts of quite niche philosophical or religious uh, movements, you know, theosophism, you know, he was he was kind of interested in muscular Christianity. He was someone trying to soothe or to calm himself through whatever he did next in his life. It struck me he was really looking for a, a sense of purpose in life. And I, I suppose that's what crystallised in, in 1932 into this plan to become the first man to climb Everest. Yes, I think of it in terms of his life had lost a sense of direction and he wanted a plot. And there was no there was no better plot line, really, than Everest. Mm. Um, I mean, a mad idea in lots of ways, but very definitely something that you could set your sights on if you were a man like Morris Wilson. There had been these Everest expeditions in the 20s and... There was a lot of talk of, you know, new expedition to Everest in 1933. And as mad as it seemed, it was something that felt tangible. 
to you know a, a newspaper reader of Britain, here is this big mountain, and you know why don't I just go and try and climb it? Well, yeah, and of course the the Mallory expeditions of the nineteen twenties were predominantly made up of other First World War veterans. Mallory's war record is not actually that dissimilar to Wilson's. It's just he was better born, higher born than than Wilson, and therefore, I suppose, commanded a little bit more respect with the establishment. I think that's right. I think that class aspect of Wilson's adventure is really interesting. Wilson felt like the establishment was against him. I mean, there is a way of looking at this that thinks the establishment was probably quite right to be against him. You know, he, <laughs> he was, um, you know, his plan had almost no chance of success and had quite a lot of chance of upsetting various people in, in various countries. But Wilson always felt like what he called the monocles and the so-and-sos of the don't you knows were all looking down on him. And there was a concerted effort by people at the air ministry, by people in the foreign office, uh, by people in the government in India to stop him. One of the great bits of research for this book was seeing all these cables flying back and forward, you know, this man must repeat, must be stopped. And I found all that quite fun, as well as quite instructive about what was going on at the time in, in class politics. My own climbing partner is a is a bloody-minded Yorkshireman, and I heard Matthew's voice whenever I was reading about Maurice Wilson, and I think it's one of the great sadnesses that we don't have a any record of his voice, because I'm sure he had a great bluff Yorkshire accent. Yeah, well, when whenever he appears in my head, the problem is that he's either Jeffrey Boycott or, or he's <laughs> Alan Bennett, and I sort of toggle between those two. So it was one of the reasons why I, could, I couldn't ever have read the book. I would have found the accent too tricky. <laughs> You've described the plan as being thought of as, as rather madcap. Can we put it a bit under the microscope and examine exactly what his plan was? Yes, the, the plan was to get in his gypsy moth biplane stuffed with expedition supplies and climbing equipment to fly it by stages from Stag Lane Aerodrome in North London all the way through Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, India, over Nepal, and then to the Himalaya, where he would crash land on the lower slopes of Everest, at which point he would get out of this aeroplane, he would don his climbing garb, and then he would begin to ascend to the top of the mountain, and he would take photographs and video film of himself at the top of Everest in order to prove the doubters that he had actually done it. Alone? Alone. Now, at risk of sounding like the Alpine Society, there were some flaws in this plan. He had never flown an aeroplane before 1932 when he bought a Gypsy Moth aeroplane and took a few flying lessons. He wasn't a mountaineer. He'd visited Snowdon a couple of times. And there are such things as international boundaries over which he was not really meant to be flying and the need to refuel his plane, quite apart from the fact that the Mallory expedition, which had been far better equipped, had failed. One can see the establishment's point, and yet Morris Wilson had complete and utter self-belief. Yeah, I would. I think he would have seen all of these things you mentioned as details. You know, it, it was <laughs> the major flaw in his plan was he really didn't know how to climb. He was extremely fit. He had read a lot, so he knew what he needed on Everest. He was extremely determined, which got him a large part of the way. His flying was not great to start with. Partly his wounded left arm caused him trouble in the cockpit. Um, and it took him a little bit longer than most students to get his solo flying license. He'd probably had about 40 hours experience before he set off for Everest. But he improved quite a bit on the way. So, I mean, it is an extraordinary prospect. But isn't it amazing, and without giving too much away, how far he got? 
Well, yes, we have to avoid spoilers, obviously. But the way that you present the book, we know from the very beginning that he is setting off on foot from Darjeeling. His plane had been impounded, but he'd got all the way to India and outsmarted the authorities here, there and everywhere. He was very, very tough, as you say. Very tough and quite wily. There's a wonderful moment when he's in Bahrain and uh, there is a hapless British official called Gordon Locke, who in my head is played by Steve Coogan in the film. And Locke makes him promise to turn back. You know, he's been instructed this man may not continue. And Wilson goes, well, if I'm going to turn back, I'm going to need fuel. And so he grants him a fuel chit. And uh, in the morning, Morris Wilson flies off seemingly back towards the UK but in fact he instead of turning left he turns right and he goes off on his way towards India um you know the British official fuming on the runway beneath him there's wonderful stuff like that there's wonderful stuff about him kind of pinching fuel that he needs and dragooning local people to help him find uh, what he needs on the ground of using you know, school atlases that he finds in a Baghdad bazaar to navigate by. I mean, it's just wonderful. But yes, extremely tough, resourceful, probably quite hard work to be around. But he got an awfully long way. Yeah, I mean, I was put in mind of people like Lawrence of Arabia and Patrick Lee Fermer and, and David Sterling, who, who founded the SAS. I mean, th these guys... They don't play by the rules, but they're tough, they're resourceful, they're the kind of men we laud in battle and then are suspicious of in peacetime. And yet Firma and Lawrence are still held up as shining examples of, of British resourcefulness. And poor old Morris Wilson really fell into obscurity. Well, I have a theory about this. My theory is that, you know, his story was, if not poorly told, then told with a certain amount of uh, snobbery or disdain. The first book that uh, outlined his tale, I'll Climb Mount Everest Alone by Dennis Roberts, I think did him a disservice. And that was in the 1950s. And I, because I think it took as its position that he was never going to succeed and so on. And therefore it was a stupid undertaking. I tried to approach Morris Wilson knowing that what he was doing was kind of crazy. I also wanted to know why he'd done it. And to me, his great qualities shine out. And he was someone who found his best self, really, on that road to Everest. He, he found his best qualities. And he was someone who, you know, really did take all kinds of people from all over the world exactly as he found them. You know, there was an earthquake in Darjeeling when he was staying there just before he walked to Everest. And he was the only Westerner, the only white man to help rebuild the city alongside the local people. Uh, and those are the th sorts of things that made me feel like, actually, this person has been misunderstood. He's a great soul. He's a, he's a big, sometimes maddening character. But uh, wouldn't the world be boring without people like Morris Wilson? Yeah, and you tell his story through your own research, but that also includes his diaries and some of his letters back. And we do see that he has a heart. He, he's a bloody-minded man, but he, he certainly has a heart. And he's, he's loved. This is a rather bizarre love story between him and Edith Evans, who was his friend's wife. Yeah, this is something that... It's kind of a confounding aspect of this story. Wilson fell in with this married couple in Maid of Earl in the, in the months and years before his adventure. And he seems to have fallen in love with both of them. It seems to be this kind of suburban menage a trois, possibly chaste. But the letters are full of feeling and it's very hard to work out really what's going on. It's pretty clear to me that Enid and, and Morris are very keen on each other, but there's no attempt to hide this from Len Evans, who's who's Enid's husband. So who knows? I include enough of those letters, I think, for readers to get a really good flavour mm. of, of just how strange and interesting this relationship was. 
yes, why would Maurice Wilson do anything in a straightforward way? And yet you can see that he has deep feelings and and she is probably the only person apart from him who believes that he might make it. But she's not alone in holding him in high esteem. No less a person than Reinhold Messner, the first man to achieve what Maurice Wilson was hoping to do, to to solo Mount Everest. He, too, thinks that Wilson was an extraordinary man. And you went to visit Messner as part of your research for this book. I did. I went to visit Reinhold Messner at one of his castles in in South Tyrol, (laughs) which is an experience I will never forget. He's quite a forbidding presence. But we had this amazing conversation and the esteem in which he holds Morris Wilson is so high. You know, he he sees a little bit of himself in it. You know, the the kind of madness, the kind of the stubbornness, and a, lo- a lot of what I know about Messner's relationship, I suppose, with Morris Wilson comes from this book that he wrote about his solo of Everest called The Crystal Horizon, and he describes these waking dreams, these kind of hallucinations in which he talks to Wilson on the high slopes of Everest. And there's one point at which, on a, at a very high camp with only a day's climbing to get to the summit of Everest, Messner is saying, if Morris Wilson had got up here, he would have made it. He's tougher than I am. And, you know, he thinks Wilson's with him in the tent. It's a really extraordinary kind of psychedelic piece of writing. And it made me think, well, Messner is no fool and he understands you know, what makes people tick. And if he thinks there's something in Wilson, you know, I think there's something for me there too. You researched this story for years and were lucky enough to turn up a new treasure trove of correspondence from a distant nephew of Maurice Wilson's. Could you tell us how that came about? So what what I was able to turn up was there was a box of letters, Morris Wilson's letters, that were in a basement in Germany. And the route that they took to get there is too convoluted for us to get get to, in, in even in uh, podcast form. But the, the really wonderful uh, moment for me was I had assumed that there were no living relatives of Morris Wilson because the family trees all seemed to, you know, be extinguished. You know, Wilson had no children. It seemed that his brothers, it didn't seem like they had children who had survived. And so I was really at a loss to think, like, who else would know anything about him? But then writing to various probate offices and so on, I was able to discover that uh, one of Morris Wilson's brothers had married again and had children by that marriage. And one of them was still alive and living in Bradford. And I remember calling this man up and him saying... (laughs) Something like, this about Maurice then? (laughs) And I was like, it was like he'd been waiting for 70 years for me to call. You know, no one else had ever. I said, oh, I'm a writer. And he said, oh, this must be the longer way to call. So I went to his house and he got this box of old letters and a poem and some photographs out of the dresser in his dining room. And I just looked at it all with my hands shaking because there were things there that I'd never seen. And it was just this wonderful moment. In that collection was Morris Wilson's Military Cross. In that collection was the second half of a poem that I, I, you know, I'd read the first half and the second half talks about the war and talks about love and talks about, you know, what he's doing this all for. And I don't know, it was wonderful. In a research process that had been very, very difficult and convoluted and, and, it was very hard to find information. That was a really magical moment. Do you think there is anything else that could possibly turn up about Maurice Wilson? Or or do you think the sands of time have covered it over? I do sometimes think about this. My my impression was that when I um, stopped researching the book, that was because I really felt like there is no more stuff out there. There comes a point where too many people are dead and too many people don't have 
a kind of connection to the people that might have known something for there to be anything. However, you never say never. I won't talk about it now, but I'm working on something now where there is quite a lot of archive and it feels like there might be endless material and one of the problems would be knowing when to stop. <laughs> but, I d- but I did instinctively know, I think, that I'd reached the end of the road with Morris Wilson and therefore what I had was what I had and then I had to write the story. And what do you think his legacy is now that you have rescued him from not quite obscurity and and, and put him back on the list of Everest pioneers? Well, I hope that people see someone who had the same impulse that every mountaineer has to get to the top. He didn't have the skills to achieve it, but he hurt no one in doing what he did. He actively sought to help the three Sherpas that had accompanied him to Camp 3, you know, by writing them letters of recommendation. He was someone who didn't hurt the people in his way and who was striving for reasons that were probably obscure even to him to achieve this great thing. Someone who tried to redeem himself by doing this great and theatrical feat, which is something that many of us can understand, I think. We're we're all trying to find the the thread of our own lives, trying to find the plot. He was just slightly more theatrical and outsized in his solutions. And certainly, I think in many ways, pioneered that sort of stripped-down form of mountaineering that we've come to associate with our age and which we also look for in other sports, not least in marathon running, which we will come to after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Ed Caesar on the topic of human endurance. Now, in your book, Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon, you call that quest the Sports Everest. We like to set ourselves solid targets, preferably rounded ones, to break records, to achieve things. And you clearly see a parallel between mountaineering and marathon running. Well, yes, when I was researching two hours, the absurdity of it struck me as well. You know, we run 26 miles and 385 yards for a very strange series of historical reasons. It's not a round distance. And, you know, we count time the way we do. Why should it matter if we can run this very long way in just over or just under two hours? And yet, for reasons that are to do with how humans see the world, you know, we cleave to these landmarks and they become important to us. And since publishing the book, you know, I've witnessed at first hand twice people attempting, you know, specifically to break two hours for the marathon. So this is obviously not something that's unique to me or to a small group of marathon nuts. It's something that captures people's imagination in the way that Roger Bannister's Four Minute Mile captured the imagination. Yeah, I mean, the marathon is the finale to the Olympics. And you give us some of the history of this. It it, it was chosen in 1896 of the first modern Olympics to be the grand finale. And that was done as much as a marketing exercise as in a nod to history. Yeah, in that first Olympics, the first modern Olympics in 1896, there is this wonderful you know, recreation of a possibly mythic event in which a messenger called Pedes runs from Marathon, where there's been a battle to tell the Athenian worthies of their success. And he says, joy to you, we conquer. And then he drops dead um, on the spot from exhaustion. So in, the, in that 1896 race, 
you know, a Greek man enters the stadium first and the king of Greece runs the final lap with him. It's all wonderful, you know, theatre. I love all that stuff. You know, the, the story of the early Olympic marathons deserves a book in itself. I mean, they were so corrupt and so so full of cheating and um, skullduggery. There's, there's one in St. Louis in, I think, 1904, in which the person leading the race into the stadium was someone who actually jumped into a car at nine miles and only got out at 19 miles when the car broke down. That's, you know, that kind of thing just made me howl with laughter. You know, it's not the absolute, you know, sort of paradigm of sporting excellence that we now consider it to be. No, and doping was present at the very beginning as well. I think Brandy was involved in the 1904 or and, 1908 and, Olympics. And strychnine. As you say, these are, are wonderful stories of the early Olympics. I had never realised that the 26 miles and 385 yards was chosen fairly randomly as the distance to satisfy the needs of the 1908 London Olympics. Yeah, that's right. A marathon before then had been anything sort of 24 or 25 miles, roughly. And then in 1908, for the London Olympics, the organisers wanted to follow the course of what was called the London Polytechnic Marathon. And they were going to go from Windsor into Shepherd's Bush, where the stadium was. And it was extended by a few hundred yards so that the royal family could wave them off from the terrace of Windsor Castle. So this is... (laughs) Um, sometimes, I think there was. A, I don't think this is, exists anymore. But in New York, at 26 miles, I think they used to have a sign saying 385 yards to go. <laughs> Thanks a bunch, royal family. But yeah, some of these things have become smushed in you know in the passage of time because it seems like that course measured slightly wrong anyway. But yes, that's the story that, that it was extended slightly so that the royal family could wave them off. But these great stories all add to the sort of mythical nature of the marathon. And marathon mania really took, especially after the, the 1908 Olympics, which had a fantastic finale, which you detail in the book, and I suppose led directly to the marathon that really changed the game for everybody, the, the New York Marathon, where fun runners and elite runners got together in this kind of hippie-like, all-together-now sort of way, and it made it a sport that anybody could try and therefore broadened its appeal even further. Yeah, there is something wonderful about a city marathon, but they only really took off. Like What we now understand as a big city marathon really only took off in the 70s. I mean, they are wonderful. They are cynicism proof. Like you can't watch the London Marathon without feeling good. It doesn't matter how mm. how much of an old embittered cynic you are. There are people there trying to run it in, you know, two hours and one minute. And there are people there trying to run it in five hours and one minute, and they're all in the same race. And they're yeah, all yeah wearing do- a rhino costume exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all they're all doing the same thing, and it and it hurts the guy at the front, and it hurts the guy at the back, and I, you know that to me is there is something wonderfully egalitarian or inclusive about that. I mean, I find the coverage of the professional marathon quite annoying generally on TV because I want to know what's happening in the race. And quite often they do cut to the person in the rhino suit a few too many times. But there is no doubting that as an experience, that the person in the rhino suit is very much as important as the person who's going to win the race. And as with all professional sport there is a lot of money at stake and it's the fun runners and the charity runners whose entry fee pay for the big name elite ultra marathon runners and you followed one of the top runners Joffrey Mutai from 2012 for three years in his quest to try and break the two-hour barrier. And he had a very specific reason for wanting to do this, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I started writing this book was because I'd been to Kenya on a reporting trip about something completely different and had been up in running country and had seen these thousands of people trying to be professional runners in this beautiful landscape, you know, and these huge groups of People would be training together and kicking up dust on these like high roads in, you know, on the western edge of the Rift Valley. And I thought, I've never seen anything as beautiful in my life than these training groups out in the early morning. 
And I wanted to tell the story of the elite marathon through the eyes of one person. And and Geoffrey Mutai is this uh, very interesting, quite damaged person who had grown up extremely poor, had you know witnessed terrible things in his in his early life, including the 2007-2008 post-election tribal violence. And he had run this extraordinary race in Boston, which is not considered a terribly fast course. He had, he had run 203.02 for the marathon, winning that race. And it was below the world record at the time, but Boston is not considered eligible for the world record. And so he had harbored this huge resentment about the fact that he had been denied the world record, despite having run quicker than it. And so he was trying to prove that he was genuinely the fastest man in the world. And and he never quite recaptured that form. So it's, it's a book about failure in some senses, but also, I guess, a book about striving for very, very high goals. Failure in many ways is much more interesting than success anyway, as, <laughs> as, you'll see, as I hope you'll see from both my books. <laughs> During those three years, you spent time with him in the Skylands training area, which is a mountainous area of Kenya above the Rift Valley. And it's harsh countryside. And he has a very rudimentary cottage there that he shares with his training partners. And they run unthinkable distances up and downhill in high altitude to train. And it's no coincidence that the majority of elite endurance runners come from this area of the Rift Valley. That's exactly right. It's a huge combination of factors. Firstly, there is the great economic imperative, which is that this incredibly poor area of the world in which they've had some success in running and therefore that generates its own momentum because people see that running can be a way out of subsistence farming. There is a kind of genetic element where the people who live in that area on the on the western escarpment of the Rift Valley are sort of genetically lowland people they've used to live in in the valley itself who are now living high and therefore they get this great benefit from the reduced oxygen someone has done a, a study on you know the length of the achilles of mm. you know kenyan runners i mean is this the running man theory yeah but, but i mean i treat that you know with some caution mm. I, because you know, you have people from all over the world who win marathons, uh, even though a huge percentage of them come from Kenya. You have, you know, lots of great runners from all over the world. And I think the biggest single factor in the success of the Kenyans is that so many of them try to do it. You know, it's a it's a talent factory. And also, we must note, there have been quite a few doping busts as well so that's one other thing to think about when when you're thinking about their success now one other thing that you delve into is highly gabri selassie's contention that all elite endurance runners spring from twisted roots the hardship that a lot of these young men will have experienced as children in a very poor and, as you say, often unstable political area of Africa has led them to push themselves to the limits of endurance. And I suppose there we can see a parallel with the story of Maurice Wilson. He had everything taken away from him in many ways, and had to fall back on his own resilience and try and find a way to find purpose in life. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels. You know, when we come to the greatest marathon runner of all time, um, Elliot Kipchoge, who's, who kind of came to prominence just after my book had come out, and who has won more times and faster than anyone else in the history of the sports, he's an extraordinary example of this you know he's he did have a very um you know rough uh, early life um his ability to withstand 
pain to over to overcome pain um, in this almost zen-like way is quite extraordinary. And you just cannot imagine someone who had come from a very comfortable upbringing even bothering to find out whether they have those reserves of um, courage or endurance. Um, it just wouldn't be worthwhile for them. But it is worthwhile for people like Kipchoge. Yeah, and I suppose uh, Joffrey Mutai would have said this is all part of the training in many ways. He, he, he having grown up in, in such poverty, in such violence, um, he, when you were talking to him, took that as a matter of course, and you, you don't succeed without a certain degree of suffering. I think that's right. I mean, I, I wouldn't wish this, you know, uh, brutal childhood on my own children. You wouldn't wish it on these people. And so it's a hard thing to say, isn't it? But there, there is, there does seem to be at least um, a link between the, the problems that these men have had to overcome and what they are able to do later in life. Yeah, I mean, he, he goes on to say that races are one in the head before they're one in the feet. And I suppose that's it. it you know, Joffrey Mutai had suffered worse yeah. than the pain of running a two-hour, five-minute marathon. Exactly. Now, you went on to cover the Breaking Two project after this book, where Nike set out to... Uh, throw money and resources and the best runners in the world at breaking the two-hour barrier. But as yet, it has not been broken in a recognised marathon on the roads, has it? So so what, what happened was Nike did their Breaking Two projects in which Elliot narrowly missed, Elliot Kipchoge narrowly missed his two hours. And then... In 2019, uh, Ineos uh, sponsored another effort by Kipchoge. Um, again, not recognised for record purposes, but uh, 26 miles and 385 yards on the roads. And he did. He, he sneaked under it. I was in the commentary box for the BBC that day. And when he crossed the line, <laughs> I was there for my insights and for my, you know, for the depth of my understanding of this problem and all I could do was roar I stood up out of my chair and roared um it was just an incredible moment to witness up close um but again it was not the world record because they had teams of pacemakers coming in and out uh, and so on but like the the analogy I suppose that I come back to with this is that Everest was climbed with oxygen uh so uh, Edmund Hillary and uh, Tengzin Norgay got to the top of Everest with supplementary oxygen first and then 25 years later someone gets to the top of Everest with no oxygen and on their own uh, Messner you know that that's the parallel um, Kipchoge showed it could be done uh, with the shoes of this current moment with these teams of pacemakers coming in and out um, he was able to to break that barrier, and someone will eventually do it in a race because that's what happens. And as you point out, with Roger Bannister's four minute mile, as soon as somebody does it, then a lot of people do it. it, it it's almost as if, well, coming back to the battle has to be won in the brain first. That's it. It's a strange thing about these barriers that they see more formidable before they're broken than after they are. But you'll see with um, Kipchoge, he's got an extraordinary brain in, in that, you know, he's run these world records where he, he really has got very, very close to two hours now. He's, you know, 201 low now, which he ran in Berlin last year in kind of an extraordinary way. He ran at sub two hour pace for the first half of a, you know, of a real race. Mm and only slightly tailed off in the second half. And he's, you know, by most measures, past his peak. You know, it's it's a really extraordinary thing that he's able to do to his body. Um, whether we'll get someone like him again, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it'll happen one day. 
Now, both your books have been brought brilliantly to life in audio by very good narrators, which I always feel are, it, it's even more necessary to have a good narrator in the case of a non-fiction book, because quite often there are lots of facts and figures. You mentioned that you couldn't possibly have done Maurice Wilson's voice for The Moth and the Mountain. Were you very involved in the choice of narrators for the books? I listened to uh, potential narrators. Um, so in the case of The Moth and the Mountain, I remember there were a few samples sent to me. And in fact, I think there there is a different narrator for the um, North American and for the um, UK versions. But the, I remember the UK one, uh, who's a guy called Chris Dyer, um, seemed incredibly obvious to me when I heard him speak that he should do it. Um, and I couldn't really tell you why, except for I could just imagine him telling the story. And, you know, lots of people have told me that they've loved his narration of the book. So that's quite gratifying that I feel like I got that one right. Well, it certainly reads like a proper climbing book to me as somebody who rather likes their climbing books. It it certainly ranks along the side the Chris Bonington type of books. So oh, fantastic. I, I was very chuffed. <laughs> so... Now, you mentioned that you're working on something else at the moment. Can you give us a sneak preview or is it still under wraps? Uh, so my day job, if you like, is I'm a magazine writer for The New Yorker. And so I've always got uh, new stories that I'm working on for them. That's kind of half of what I'm doing. I am working on a new book, which I'm just writing the proposal for at the moment, but I have done maybe four or five months research on already and been into the archives. And I won't tell you exactly what it's about, but it's mostly in the Second World War and it's it's about the resistance in uh, occupied Europe. So it's testing my French and compared to the moth, there's a lot more archive to, to dig through, but it's incredibly exciting. You know, it's a story about adventure and uh, escape and love and, you know, lots of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, endurance to a certain extent, but it was one of those ones not unlike the moth where as soon as I came across the story I knew that I had to do it you know it's one of those stories that wouldn't leave me alone so um, I'm really excited about getting going well I will look forward to talking to you about that after publication but in the meantime I think we should take another break and then I'm going to probe you for the books of your life this is my life in books on AMI audio with red sale we're back in a moment Welcome back to My Life in Books. And now it's time to share Ed Caesar's books of his life. Ed, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes. I don't know whether this counts as being a youngster, but when I was um, 18 and interrailing through Europe, I read All the Pretty Horses um, by Cormac McCarthy. And I, I suppose, you know, there'd been a period in my teenage years when I hadn't read many novels. Um, and this totally gripped me. And I was on, it's a story about an adventure and about two boys who set off from um, Texas into Mexico. And about, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible, incredibly written uh, adventure story. And it totally consumed me. And I loved the language. I loved the, this kind of spare, almost biblical language. And I remember staring out of the train, particularly when we got to bits of Croatia and it being a kind of very hot summer that summer and kind of imagining myself, um, you know, crossing the Rio Grande or whatever. And uh, yeah, that one, you know, a very special book to me, All the Pretty Horses. Fantastic. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yes, my my comfort book uh, is Me Cheetah by James Lever, which is a spoof chimp memoir. Um, it's the story of uh, the uh, chimpanzee who was uh, in the Tarzan movies with Johnny Weissmuller. And this is his Hollywood memoir. It is absolutely hilarious. It's incredibly rude. Um, 
and it details his life in Hollywood with various celebrities. Um, I weep with laughter. It's the book that I've asked my wife to send me when I'm imprisoned in some um, you know, foreign country for many years and she can only send me one book. She can send me Me Cheetah. <laughs> I think that's just gone onto my Christmas list. And is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? This might be a slight cheat because it's not coming out until later in the year, but um, I read an early version of a book called A Thread of Violence by Mark O'Connell, which will be out in June. And uh, I it completely I found it completely haunting. It's a book about Malcolm MacArthur, who committed a double murder in Ireland in the 80s, um, who is a kind of gentleman-like figure. He's from... Uh, faintly noble background. Um, it's definitely not the sort of person that you would expect to be committing a double murder. And the author, Mark, gets to know him on his release from prison. And it's a story that investigates violence and why people do the things that they do. It's totally remarkable. And uh, I assume that many of your listeners are going to want to read it anyway when all the reviews come out, but they should read it. Ed Caesar, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading and more about the life of Maurice Wilson and the quest for the two-hour marathon with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Ed Caesar, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode... So don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. If you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.